What up, guys? It's Andrew Baxley on the Late Night Faxy Bax Podcast. Right now, it's currently 10.36 p.m. So it's a great time to spit out some facts and say completely 100% things. You can reach out to me at latenightfactsatgmail.com and tweet out to me on Twitter for future episode suggestions at, at Late Night Facts. Look at my other podcast, the AA Podcast, on Anchor, YouTube, and Spotify. And definitely check it out and hit us up for suggestions. I now tonight's facts I'm gonna drop is about the third law um, of behavior change and this is part of the five um, episode series on habits and how to cultivate good habits and to get rid of of bad habits and to do those things to cultivate good habits and to get rid of bad habits um you gotta have these four laws of behavior change four laws of behavior changes and you and at the end of each law there's an inversion of that law to make um that bad habit unattractive um not easy um, invisible. Alright, so we're gonna get right to it. So, the third law of behavior change is make it easy. And I'm getting this this information from a book called Atomic Habits, written by James Clear. I recommend to you guys that you check out the book or buy it because we're still on this quarantine thing. So if you're bored at home, if you already finished watching Outer Banks or Tiger King on Netflix and you got nothing else to do besides working out, I recommend you read this book, sit outside, relax, read this book. Trust me, this book would change your life as it did to mine. Um, Also, look out for future podcasts on the Netflix show Outer Banks, as me and some of my boys will talk about the show, and we'll talk about our obsession um, with Sarah Cameron, or otherwise known as the actor Madeline Klein. Um, wow, she is something special. All right, we're moving on. We don't need to talk about my love life right now because it's non-existent. All right. So here we go. Now, this part is going to be talking about like walking um, slowly, but kind of like not in a backward, um, backward position. So here we go. I'm going to quote this from the book. Um, on the first day of class, Jerry Yulsman. A professor at the University of Florida divided his film photography students into two groups. Everyone on the left side of the classroom, he explained, would be in the quantity group. They would be graded solely on the amount of work they produced. On the final day of class, he would tally the number of photos submitted by each student. 100 photos would be ra- 100 photos would rate an A. 90 photos a B. 80 photos, AC, and so on. Meanwhile, everyone on the right side of the room would be in the quality group. They would be graded only on the excellence of their work. They would only need to produce one photo during the semester. But to get an A, it would be a nearly perfect image. At the end of the term, he was surprised to find out that all the best photos were produced by the quantity group. During the semester, these students were busy taking photos, experimenting with composition and lighting, testing out various methods in the darkroom and learning from their mistakes. In the process of creating hundreds of photos, they honed their skills. Meanwhile, the quality group sat around speculating about perfection. In the end, they had little to show for their efforts other than unverified theories and one mediocre photo. So it is easy to get bogged down 
um, brought down, bogged, brought down, um, trying to find the optimal plan for change, the fastest way to lose weight, the best program to build muscles, the perfect idea for a side hustle. We are so focused on figuring out the best approach that we never get around to taking action. As Voltaire once wrote, quote, the best is the enemy of the good, end quote. James Clear says um, that he refers to this as the difference between being in motion and taking action. The two ideas sound similar, but they're not the same. When you're in motion, you're planning and strategizing and learning. Those are all good things, but they don't produce a result. Action, on the other hand, is a type of behavior that will deliver an outcome. Um, so, this is James Clare's example right here. He says, quote, if I outline 20 ideas for articles I want to write, that's motion. If I actually sit down and write an article, that's an action. If I search for a better diet plan and read a few books on the topic, that's motion. If I actually eat a healthy meal, that's action. Sometimes motion is useful, but it will never produce an outcome by itself. It doesn't matter how many things you go talk to the personal trainer. The motion will never get you in shape. Only the action of working out will get the result you're looking to achieve. If motion doesn't lead to results, why do we do it? Sometimes we do it because we actually need to plan it or learn more. But more often than not, do it because motion allows us to feel like we're making progress without running the risk of failure. Most of us are experts at avoiding criticism. It doesn't feel good to fail or to be judged publicly. So we tend to avoid situations where that might happen. And that's the biggest reason why you slip into motion rather than taking action. You want to delay failure. It's easy to be in motion and convince yourself that you're still making progress. You think, I've got conversations going with four potential clients right now. This is good. We are moving in the right direction. Or, I brainstormed some ideas for that book I want to write. This is coming together. Motion makes you feel like you're getting things done, but reality, you're just preparing to get something done. When preparation becomes a form of procrastination, you need to change something. You don't want to merely be planning. You want to be practicing. If you want to master a habit, the key is to start with repetition, not perfection. You don't need to map out every feature of a new habit. You just need to practice it. So this is the first takeaway of the third law. You just need to get your reps in. So now we're going to move on. So how long does it actually take to form a new habit? So habit formation is a process by which a behavior becomes progressively more automatic through repetition. The more, the more you repeat an activity, the more the structure of your brain changes to become efficient at that activity. Neuroscientists call this long-term potentiation, which refers to the strengthening of connections between neurons in the brain based on recent patterns of activity. When, with each repetition, cell-to-cell -cell signaling improves and the neural connections tighten. First described by neuropsychologist Donald Hebb in 1949, this phenomenon is commonly known as Hebb's Law. Quote, neurons that fire together, wired together. End quote. Repeating a habit leads to clear physical changes in the brain. And musicians, the cerebellum, um, critical for physical movements, um, like plucking a guitar string or pulling a violin bow, it is larger than it is non-musicians. Mathematicians, meanwhile, have increased gray matter in the inferior um, periolobal, um, which plays a key role in computation and calculation. 
Its size is directly correlated with the amount of time spent in the field. The older and more experienced mathematician, the greater the increase in gray matter. When scientists analyzed the brains of taxi drivers in London, they found that the hippocampus, the region of the brain involved in spatial memory, was significantly larger in their subjects than in non-taxi drivers. Even more fascinating, the hippocampus decreased in size when a driver retired. Like the muscles of the body responding to regular weight training, particular regions of the brain adapt as they are used in atrophy as they are abandoned. Of course, the importance of repetition in established habits was recognized long before neuroscientists began um, poking around with it. In 1860, the English philosopher George H. Lewis, Lewis noted, quote, in learning to speak a new language, to play on a musical instrument, or to perform on unaccustomed movements, great difficulties felt because the channels through which each sensation has to pass have not become established. But no sooner has frequent repetition cut a pathway than this difficulty vanishes. The actions become so automatic that they can be performed while the mind is otherwise engaged. Both common sense and scientific evidence agree repetition is a form of charge. Each time you repeat an action, you're activating a particular neural circuit associated with this habit. This means that simply putting in your reps is one of the most critical steps you can take to encoding a new habit. This is why the students who took tons of photos improved their skills while those who merely theorized about perfect photos did not. One group engaged in active practice, the other in passive learning. One in action, the other in motion. All habits follow a similar trajectory from effortful practice to automatic behavior. A process known as automaticity. Automaticity. Um, automaticity um, is the ability to perform a behavior without thinking about each step, which occurs when the non-conscious mind takes over. So now in this bo book, it gives a graph what it looks like. So if you have this book or you want to get it, note this page number. It's on page 145. So, imagine, a, just, I'm going to try to explain it to you right now. Um, so, imagine a graph. Imagine a curve um, going upward. So, it's going up, going up to the right. And imagine, kind of towards the top, there's a horizontal dotted line, and that's the habit line. So, about, let's say, 80%. If it's under the line and 20% is over the line. So 20% over the line will be still curving to the right. Um, and the x-axis is repetitions. And the y-axis is automaticity. Automaticity, yeah. So imagine three spots, A, B, and C. A and B are under the habit line. C is above the habit line. So I'm gonna read you the description. Hopefully you guys can picture this in your brain. So it says, in the beginning, point A, a habit requires a good deal of effort and concentration to perform. After a few repetitions, point B, it gets easier, but still requires some conscious attention. With enough practice, point C, which is above the habit line, the habit becomes more automatic than conscious. Beyond this threshold, the habit line, the behavior can be done more or less without thinking. A new habit has been formed. Learning curves is very important um, in this. Um, learning about habits, um, trying to boost your good habits and trying to get rid of your bad habits. So I recommend you guys research a lot about learning curves. Um, and it mentions it a lot in this book. But what learning curves reveal, um, it reveals an important truth about behavior change. That habits form based on frequency, um, not time. So, one of the most common questions it says here that James Clear hears is, how long does it take to build a new habit? 
But what people really should be asking is how many does it take to form a new habit? That is, how many repetitions are required to make a habit automatic? There's nothing magical about time passing with regard to habit formation. It doesn't matter if it's been 21 days, or 30 days, or 300 days. What matters is the rate at which you perform the behavior. You could do something twice in 30 days, or 200 times. It's the frequency that makes the difference. Your current habits have been internalized over the course of hundreds, if not thousands of repetitions. New habits require the same level of frequency. You need to string together enough enough successful attempts until the behavior is firmly embedded in your mind and you cross the habit line. So in practice, it doesn't really matter how long it takes for a habit to become automatic. What matters is that you take the actions you need to make to take to make progress to make progress. Whether an action is fully automatic um, is of less importance. To build a habit, you need to practice it. After, like for example, because um, I play basketball, if I want to perfect something, I gotta get a bunch of bunch of reps in, even though it's gonna be boring. So before I became a good shooter, I sucked at shooting. Um, and when my trainer was, my trainer told me, Andrew, to become a better shooter, you got to get a bunch of reps in of um, your basic um, shooting form. So like shot form shots, which is saying like one, fit, one f- um, foot in front of the rim and get one hand, lift it up and shoot it over and over again. So form shots. Hundreds and hundreds, a hundred of those. After that, my shot clicked. I had the right hand position, everything. So without those repetitions, my shot would be whack today and I would not be a great shooter. So the most effective way to make practice happen is to adhere to the third law of behavior change. Make it easy. So this concludes this chapter. So walk slowly, but never backwards. Make it easy, not hard. And now we're going to move on to... um, So talking about the third law, make it easy. And now we're going to get into the law of least effort. All right. So moving on. Um, I'm reading this from the book. So quote, in his award-winning book... Guns, Germs, and Steel, anthropologist and biologist Jared Diamond points out a simple fact. Different continents have different shapes. At first glance, the statement seems rather obvious and unimportant, but it turns out to have a profound impact on human behavior. The primary axis of the Americans runs from north to south. That is, the landmass of North and South America tends to be tall and thin rather than wide and fat. The same is generally true for Africa. Meanwhile, the landmass that makes up Europe, Asia, and the Middle East is the opposite. This massive stretch of land tends to be more east-west in shape. According to Diamond, this difference in shape played a significant role in the spread of agriculture over the centuries. When agriculture began to spread around the globe, farmers had an easier time expanding along east-west routes than along north-south ones. This is because locations along the same latitude generally share similar climates, amounts of sunlight and rainfall, and changes in season. These factors allowed farmers in Europe and Asia to, to, what's the word, Um, to domesticate, there's a good word, um, a few crops and grow them along the entire stretch of land from France to China. By comparison, the climate varies greatly when traveling from north to south. Just imagine how different the weather is in Florida compared to Canada. You can be the most talented farmer in the world, but it won't help you grow Florida oranges in the Canadian winter. Snow is a poor substitute for soil. In order to spread crops along north-south routes, farmers would need to find and domesticate new plants whenever the climate changed. As a result, agriculture spread two to three times faster across Asia and Europe than it did up and down the Americas. Over the span of centuries, this small difference had a very big impact. Increased food production allowed for more rapid population growth. 
With more people, these cultures were able to build stronger armies and were better equipped to develop new technologies. The changes started out small. A crop that spread slightly farther, a population that grew slightly faster, but compounded into substantial differences over time. The spread of agriculture provides an example of the third law of behavior change on a global scale. Conventional wisdom holds that motivation is the key to habit change. Maybe if you really wanted it, you would actually do it. But the truth is, our real motivation is to be lazy and to do what is convenient. And despite what the latest productivity bestseller will tell you, this is a smart strategy, not a dumb one. Energy is precious, and the brain is wired to conserve it whenever possible. It is human nature to follow the law of least effort which states that when deciding between two similar options, people will naturally gravitate toward the option that requires the least amount of work. For example, expanding your farm to the east where you can grow the same crops rather than heading north where the climate is different. Out of all the possible actions we could take, the one that is realized is the one that delivers the most value for the least effort. We are motivated to do what is easy. And every action requires a certain amount of energy. The more energy required, the less likely it is to occur. If your goal is to do 100 push-ups per day, that's a lot of energy. And it's very hard too. In the beginning, when you're motivated and excited, you can muster the strength to get started. But after a few days, such a massive effort feels exhausting. So I can give a personal experience on that. So I do this big ab workout. And the first couple of days, it's like, oh, I'm pumped up, excited, full of energy. But after a while, it's hard and boring. But I had to learn how to conserve my energy to gain that energy right before the workout so I can get through the whole thing because it wasn't easy at all. But I found out from reading this book how I could approach this exercise and how I can do it without me thinking the whole day about, oh, this is going to suck. Oh, um, and I learned like to be to say right before the workout, "Wow, I'm grateful that I can able that I can do this workout," and that gives me a little boost um, to do that exercise. So, in the beginning, um, so meanwhile, sticking to the habit of doing one push-up per day requires almost no energy to get started, and the less energy a habit requires, the more likely it is to occur look at any behavior that fills up much of your life and you'll see that it can be performed with very low levels of motivation habits like scrolling on our phones checking email and watching television steal so much of our time because they can be performed almost without effort they are remarkably convenient in a sense every habit is just an obstacle to getting what you really want dieting is an obstacle to getting fit. Meditation is an obstacle to feeling calm. Journaling is an obstacle to thinking clearly. You don't actually want the habit itself. What you really want is the outcome that habit delivers. The greater the obstacle, that is, the more difficult the habit, the more friction there is between you and your desired end state. This is why it is crucial to make your habits so easy that you'll do them even when you don't feel like it. If you want, if you can make your good habits more convenient, you'll be more likely to follow through on them. But what about all the moments when we seem to do the opposite? If we're all so lazy, then how do you explain people accomplishing hard things like raising a child, or starting a business, or climbing Mount Everest? Certainly, you're capable of doing very hard things. The problem is that some days you feel like doing the hard work, and some days you feel like giving in. On the tough days, it's crucial to have as many things working in favor in your favor as possible so that you can overcome the challenges that that overcome the challenges life naturally um, throws your way. The less friction you face, the easier it is for your stronger self to emerge. The idea behind make it easy is not to only do easy things. The idea is to make it as easy as possible in the moment to do things that pay off in the long run. So now I'm going to talk about how to achieve more with less effort. So imagine you're holding a garden hose that is bent in the middle. 
Some water can flow through, but not very much. I mean, for instance, that's happening to my siblings right now outside. They're doing the slip and slide. And barely any water is coming through the slide because there's so many knots. And it's not screwed on properly to the faucet. So it's very painful to see them operate that and not know how to solve it. <laughs> so going on. So if you want to increase the rate at which water passes through the hose, you have two options. The first option is to crank up the valve and force more water out, which my siblings are doing right now. And the second option is to simply remove the bend in the hose and let water flow through naturally, which they're not doing. My siblings aren't doing that, so that's why they're having problems. So trying to pump up your motivation to stick with a hard habit is like trying to force water through a bent hose. You can do it, but it requires a lot of effort and increases the tension in your life. Meanwhile, making your habit simple and easy is like removing the bend in the hose. Rather than trying to overcome the friction in your life, you reduce it. One of the most effective ways to reduce the friction associated with your habits is to practice environment design. As I said earlier in one of my earlier podcasts, we I discussed environment design um, kind of as a method for making cues more obvious. But you can also optimize your environment to make actions easier. So for example, when deciding where to practice a new habit, it is best to choose a place that is already along the path of your daily routine. Habits are easier to build when they fit into the flow of your life. You are more likely to go to the gym if it is on your way to work because stopping doesn't add much friction to your lifestyle. But comparison, if the gym is off the path of your normal um, commute, even by just a few blocks, now you're going out of your way to get there. Perhaps even more effective is reducing the friction within your home or office. Too often, we try to start habits in high-friction environments. We try to follow a strict diet while we're out to dinner um, with friends or family. We try to write a book in a chaotic household. We try to con- we try to concentrate while using a smartphone filled with distractions like TikTok or Visco. You know, if you've been listening to my podcast, how I hate those two things. Um... It doesn't have to be this way. We can remove the points of friction that hold us back. This is precisely what electronics uh, manufacturers in Japan began to do in the 1970s. So, quote, in an article published in in the New Yorker titled Better All the Time, James Surowiki writes, Japanese firms emphasized what came to be known as lean production relentlessly looking to remove waste of all kinds from the production process down to redesigning workplaces so workers didn't have time, didn't have to waste time twisting and turning to reach their tools. The result was that Japanese factories were more efficient and Japanese products were more reliable than American ones. In 1974, service calls for American-made color televisions were five times as common as for Japanese televisions. By 1979, it took American workers three times as long to assemble their sets. And James Clear refers to this strategy as addition by subtraction. The Japanese companies looked for every point of friction in the manufacturing process and eliminated it. As they subtracted wasted effort, they added customers and revenue. Similarly, when we remove the points of friction that take up our time and energy, we can achieve more with less effort. And this is one reason why tidying up can feel so good. We are simultaneously moving forward and lightening the cognitive load our environment places on us. So if you look at the most habit-forming products, you notice that one of the things these goods and services do best is remove little bits of friction from your life. Meal delivery services like Uber Eats, DoorDash, reduce the friction of shopping for groceries. Well, groceries or getting food. Um, Dating apps like Tinder reduce the friction of making social introductions, which is kind of bad nowadays, and it results to guys actually being afraid to make the first move and um, being nervous, and I've talked about that um, in one of my podcasts. Listen to it. Um, It's about nervousness. And that's what we talk about there in it with my guest, Allie Brady. And we talk about how nowadays some guys are just nervous to make the first move, guys and girls. But 
a lot of girls nowadays are waiting for that guy to make the first move and to make that first social interaction. Ride-sharing services reduce the friction of getting across town. Text messaging reduces the friction of sending a letter in the mail. Like a Japanese television manufacturer redesigning their work space to reduce wasted motion. Successful companies design their products to automate, eliminate, or simplify as many steps as possible. They reduce the number of fields on each form. They pare down the number of clicks required to create an account. They deliver their products with easy-to-understand directions or ask their customers to make fewer choices. When the first voice-activated speakers were released on products like Google Home, Amazon Echo, and Apple um, HomePod, it says here that James Clear asked a friend what he liked about the product he had purchased. He said it was just easier to play, to say, play some country music, than to pull out his phone, open the music app, and pick a playlist. Of course, just a few years earlier, having unlimited access to music in your pocket was a remarkably frictionless behavior compared to driving to the store and buying a CD. Like nowadays, you can rent movies on your phone instead of going to Redbox or Blockbuster. Blockbuster already closed down because of Redbox. Business is a never-ending quest to, to, to deliver the same result in an easier fashion. Similar strategies have been used effectively by governments. When the British government wanted to increase tax collection rates, they switched from sending citizens to a web page where the tax form could be downloaded to, link, to linking directly to the form. Reducing that one step is to, in the process increase the response rate from 19.2% to 23.4%. So for a country like the United Kingdom, those percentage points represent millions in tax revenue. The central idea is to create an environment where doing the right thing is as easy as possible. Much of the battle of building better habits comes down to finding ways to reduce the friction associated with our good habits and increase the friction associated with our bad habits, with our bad ones. So... Now I'm going to get into how to prime the environment, how to better the environment um, for future use. So James Clear writes, Oswald Knuckles is an IT developer from Natchez, Mississippi. He is also someone who understands the power of priming his environment. Knuckles dialed in his cleaning habits by following a strategy he refers to as resetting the room. For instance, when he finishes watching television, he places a remote back in the TV stand, arranges the pills on the couch, and folds the blanket. When he leaves his car, he throws any trash away. Whenever he takes a shower, he wipes down the toilet while the shower is warming up. As he notes, the perfect time to clean the toilet is right before you wash yourself in the shower anyway. The purpose of resetting each room is not simply to clean up after the last action, but to prepare for the next action. It says, quote, when I walk into a room, everything is in its right place, Knuckles wrote. Because I do this every day in every room, stuff always stays in good shape. People think I work hard, but I'm actually really lazy. I'm just proactively lazy. It gives you so much time back, end quote. So whenever you organize a space for its intended purpose, you're priming it to make the next action easy. So... James Clare uses his example and says, for instance, my wife keeps a box of green cards that are pre-sorted by occasion, birthday, sympathy, wedding, graduation, and more. Whenever necessary, she grabs an appropriate card and sends it off. She's incredibly good at remembering to send cards because she has reduced the friction of doing so. For years, I was the opposite. Someone would have a baby and I would think, I should send a card. But then weeks would pass, and by the time I remembered to pick one up at the store, it was too late. The habit wasn't easy. So there are many ways to prime your environment so it's, so it's ready for immediate use. If you want to cook a healthy breakfast, place a skillet on the stove, set the cooking spray on the counter, and lay out any plates and utensils you'll need the night before. When you wake up, making breakfast will be easy. So here's some examples. Want to draw more? Put your pencils, pens, notebooks, and drawing tools on top of your desk within easy reach. Want to exercise? Set out your workout clothes, shoes, gym bag, and water bottle ahead of time. Want to improve your diet? 
Chop up a ton of fruits and vegetables on weekends and pack them in containers so you have easy access to healthy, ready-to-eat options during the week. These are simple ways to make the good habit the path of least resistance. So now I'm going to talk about the inverse of it. So you can invert this principle and prime the environment to make bad behaviors difficult. So if you find yourself watching too much television, for example, then unplug it after each use. Only plug it back in if you can say out loud the name of the show you want to watch. This setup creates just enough friction to prevent mindless viewing, like Netflix binge watching. So if that doesn't do it, I mean, I kind of fall into that trap because I binge watched Outer Banks. Really good show. Um, if that doesn't do it, you can take it a step further. Unplug the television and take the batteries out of the remote after each use so it takes an extra 10 seconds to turn it back on. And if you're really hardcore, move the television out of the living room into a closet after each use. You can be sure you'll only take it out when you really want to watch something. The greater the friction, the less likely the habit. So whenever possible, um, for me, I leave my phone in a different room until lunch. So when it's right next to me, I'll check it all morning for no reason at all. But when it is in another room, I rarely think about it. And the friction is high enough that I won't go get it without a reason. As a result, I get three to four hours each morning. I mean, school takes up the most of the time when I can work without interruption. So sticking your phone in another room doesn't seem like enough. Tell a friend and family member to hide it from you for a few hours. Ask a coworker, ask a friend to keep it at their desk in the morning and give it back to you at lunch. It is by far remarkable how little friction is required to prevent unwanted behavior. So James Clear says, when I hide beer in the back of the fridge where I can't see it, I drink less. When I delete social media apps from my phone, it can be weeks before I download them again and log on. These tricks are unlikely to curb a true addiction, but for many of us, a little bit of friction can be the difference between sticking with a good habit or sliding into a bad one. Imagine the cumulative impact of making dozens of these changes and living in an environment designed to make the good behaviors easier and the bad behaviors harder. Whether we are approaching behavior change as an individual, a parent, a coach, or a leader, we should ask ourselves the, right, the same question. How can we design a world where it's easy to do what's right? Redesign your life so the actions that matter most are also the actions that are easiest to do. So now, we're going to talk about how to stop procrastinating by using this method called the two-minute rule. So James Clear starts off by writing, quote, Twilla Tharp is widely regarded as one of the greatest dancers and choreographers of the modern era. In 1992, she was awarded a MacArthur Fellowship, often referred to as the Genius Grant, and she has spent the bulk of her career touring the globe to perform her original works. She also credits much of her success to simple daily habits. She says, quote, I begin each day of my life with a ritual, she writes. I wake up at 5.30 a.m., put on my workout clothes, my leg warmers, my sweatshirt, and my hat. I walk outside my Manhattan home. I call a taxi, and I tell the driver to put me to the pumping iron gym at 91st Street and 1st Avenue, where I work out for two hours. The ritual is not the stretching and weight training I put my body through each morning at the gym. The ritual is the cab. The moment I tell the driver where to go, I've completed the ritual. It's a simple act, but doing it the same way each morning habitual, habitualizes it. Makes it repeatable, easy to do. It reduces the chance that I would skip it or do it differently. It is one more item in my arsenal of routines and one less thing to think about and quote so hailing a cab each morning may be a tiny action but it is a splendid example a wonderful example of the third law of behavior change change um, researchers estimate that 40 to 50 percent of our actions on any given day are done out of habit this is already a substantial percentage but the true influence of your habits is even greater than these numbers suggest Habits are automatic choices that influence the conscious decisions that follow. So yes, a habit can be completed in just a few seconds, but it can also shape the actions that you take for minutes or hours afterward. Habits are like the entrance ramp to a highway. 
They lead you down a path, and before you know it, you're speeding toward the next behavior. It seems to be easier to continue what you're already doing than to start doing something different. You sit through a bad movie for two hours. You keep snacking even when you're already full. You check your phone for just a second, and soon you have spent 20 minutes staring at the screen. In this way, the habits you follow without thinking often determine the choices you make when you are overthinking. I mean, when you're thinking. Every day, there are a handful of moments that deliver in an outsized impact. I refer to these little choices as decisive moments. The moment you decide between ordering takeout or cooking dinner. The moment you choose between driving your car or riding your bike. The moment you decide between starting your homework or grabbing the video game controller. These choices are a fork in the road. Decisive moments set the options available for your future self. So for instance, walking to a restaurant is a decisive moment because it determines what you'll be eating for lunch. Technically, you're in control of what you order, but in a larger sense, you can only order an item if it's on the menu. If you walk into a steakhouse, you can get a sirloin or a ribeye, but not a sushi. Your options are constrained by what's available. They are shaped by the first choice. So we are limited by where our habits lead us. This is why mastering the decisive moments throughout our day is so important. Each day is made up of many moments, but is really a few habitual choices that determine the path you take. These little choices stack up, each one setting the trajectory for how you spend the next chunk of time. Habits are the entry point, not the end point. They are the cab, not the gym. So now we're gonna get right into um, the two minute rule. So even when you know you shouldn't start small, it's easy to start too big. When you dream about making a change, excitement inevitably takes over and you end up trying to do too much too soon. The most effective way um, to counteract this tendency is to use the two-minute rule, which states, quote, when you start a new habit, it should take less than two minutes to do, end quote. So you'll find that nearly any habit can be scaled down into a two-minute version. So here are some examples. Read before bed each night becomes read one page. Do 30 minutes of yoga becomes Take out my yoga mat. Study for class becomes open my notes. Fold the laundry becomes fold one pair of socks. Run three miles becomes tie my running shoes. The idea is to make your habits as easy as possible to start. Anyone can meditate for a minute, read one page, or put one item of clothing away. And as we have just discussed, this is a powerful strategy because once you start doing the right thing, it is much easier to continue doing it. A new habit should not feel like a challenge. The actions that follow can be challenging, but the first two minutes should be easy. What you want is a gateway habit that naturally leads you down a more productive path. So you can usually figure out the gateway habits that will lead to your desired outcome by mapping out your goals on a scale from very easy to very hard. For instance, running a marathon is very hard. Running a five key, five key, five K is hard. Walking 10,000 steps is moderately difficult. Walking 10 minutes is easy. And putting on your running shoes is very easy. Your goal might be to run a marathon, but your gateway habit is to put on your running shoes. That's how you follow the two minute rule. So I'm gonna give you two other examples. Very easy, write one sentence. Easy, write one paragraph. Moderate, write 1,000 words. Hard, write a 5,000 word paper. Very hard, write a book. Another example, very easy, open your notes. Easy, study for 10 minutes. Moderate, study for three hours. Hard, get straight A's. Very hard, earn a PhD or get valedictorian. People often think it's weird to get hyped up um, about reading one page or meditating for one minute or making one sales call. But the point is not to do one thing, 
The point is to master the habit of showing up. The truth is a habit must be established before it can be improved. If you can't learn the basic skill of showing up, then you have little hope of mastering the finer details. Instead of trying to engineer a perfect habit from the start, do the easy thing on a more consistent basis. You have to standardize before you can optimize as you master the art of showing up. The first two minutes simply becomes a ritual at the beginning of a larger routine. This is not merely a, a hack to make habits easier, but actually the ideal way to master a difficult skill. The more you ritualize the beginning of a process, the more likely it becomes that you can slip into the state of deep focus that is required to do great things. By doing the same warm-up before every workout, you make it easier to get into a state of peak performance. By following the same creative ritual, you can you make it easier to get into the hard work of creating. By developing a consistent power-down habit, you make it easier to get to bed at a reasonable time each night. You may not be able to automate the whole process, but you can make the first action mindless. Make it easy to start, and the rest will follow. The two-minute rule can seem like a trick to some people. You know that the real goal is to do more than just two minutes, so it may feel like you're trying to fool yourself. Nobody is actually aspiring to read one page or do one push-up or open their notes. And if you know it's a mental trick, why would you fall for it? If the two-minute rule feels forced, try doing this. Do it for two minutes and then stop. Go for a run, but you must stop after two minutes. Start meditating, but you must stop after two minutes. Study Spanish, but you must stop after two minutes. It's not a strategy for starting. It's the whole thing. Your habit can only last 120 seconds. One, um, this is what James Clear has right here. He says, quote, one of my readers used this strategy to lose over 100 pounds. In the beginning, he went to the gym each day. But he told himself he wasn't allowed to stay for more than five minutes. He would go to the gym, exercise for five minutes, and then leave as soon as his time was up. After a few weeks, he looked around and thought, well, I'm always coming here anyway. I might as well start staying a little longer. A few years later, the weight was gone. So journaling provides another example. Nearly everyone can benefit from getting their thoughts out of their head and onto paper. But most people give up after a few days or avoid it entirely because journaling feels like a chore. The secret is to always stay below the point where it feels like work. So Greg McCohen, a leadership consultant from the United Kingdom, built a daily journaling habit by specifically writing less than he feels like. He always stopped journaling before it seemed like a hassle. Ernest Hemingway believed in similar advice for any kind of writing, and he said, quote, The best way is to always stop when you're going good. He said, end quote, strategies like this work, strategy like strategies like this work for another reason, too. They reinforce the identity you want to build. If you show up at the gym five days in a row, even if it's just for two minutes, you're casting votes for your new identity. You're not worried about getting into shape. You're focused on becoming the type of person who doesn't miss workouts. You're taking the smallest action that confirms the type of person you want to be. We rarely think about change this way because everyone is consumed by the end goal. But one push-up is better than not exercising. One minute of guitar practice is better than none at all. One minute of reading is better than never picking up a book. It's better to do less than you hope than to do nothing at all. At some point, once you've established the habit and you're showing up each day, you can combine the two-minute rule with a technique called habit shaping to scale your habit back up toward your ultimate goal. So start by mastering the first two minutes of the smallest version of the behavior. Then advance to an intermediate step and repeat the process, focusing on just the first two minutes and mastering that stage before moving on to the next level. Eventually, you end up with the habit you originally hoped to build while still keeping your focus where it should be on the first two minutes of the behavior. 
Nearly any larger life goal can be transformed into a too-many behavior. I want to live a healthy and long life. It's greater than I need to stay in shape, which greater than I need to exercise, is greater than I need to change it to my workout clothes. I want to have a happy marriage, greater than I need to be a good partner, greater than I should do something each day to make each day to make my partner's life easier, which is greater than I should make meal plan for next week. So here are some examples of habit stacking. Habit. So this will be phase one. Become an early riser. Be home by 10 p.m. every night. Phase two, have all devices, TV, phone, etc., turned off by 10 p.m. each night. Phase three, be in bed by 10 p.m. every night, um, reading a book, talking with your partner, etc. Phase four, lights off by 10 p.m. every night. Phase five, wake up at 6 a.m. every day. Becoming vegan. Okay, shout out Gracie. Phase one, start eating vegetables at each meal. Phase two, stop eating animals with four legs. Cow, a pig, a lamb, etc. Phase three, stop eating animals with two legs. Chicken, turkey, etc. Phase four, stop eating animals with no legs. Fish, clams, scallops, etc. Phase five, stop eating all animal products. Eggs, milk, cheese. Last one, starting to exercise. Kind of already talked about this. Phase one, change into workout clothes. Phase two, step out the door, try taking a walk. Phase three, drive to the gym, exercise for five minutes, and leave. Like we heard from the previous example I gave. Phase four, exercise for 15 minutes at least once per week. Phase five, exercise three times per week. So overall, guys, whenever you're struggling to stick with that habit, you can employ the two-minute rule. It's a simple way to make your habits easy. So now um, I'm going to get to the last part of this podcast, and we're going to talk about how to make good habits inevitable and bad habits impossible. So in the summer of 1830, Victor Hugo was facing an impossible deadline. Twelve months earlier, the French author had promised his publisher a new book. But instead of writing, he spent that year pursuing other projects, entertaining guests, and delaying his work. Frustrated, Hugo's publisher responded by setting a deadline less than six months away. The book had to be finished by February 1831. So, Hugo made a strange plan to beat his procrastination. He collected all of his clothes and asked an assistant to lock them away in a large chest. He was left with nothing to wear except a large shawl. Lacking any suitable clothing to go outdoors, he remained in his study and wrote furiously during the fall and winter of 1830. The Hunchback of Notre Dame was published two weeks early on January 14, 1831. So sometimes success is less about making good habits easy and more about making bad habits hard. This is an inversion of the third law of behavior change. Make it difficult. So if you find yourself continually struggling to follow through on your plans, then follow what Victor Hugo did and do what psychologists call a commitment device. So a commitment device is a choice you make in the present that controls your actions in the future. It is a way to lock in future behavior, bind you to good habits, and restrict you from bad ones. So when Victor Hugo shut his clothes away so he could focus on writing, he was creating a commitment device. So there are many ways to create a commitment device. Um, you can reduce overeating by purchasing food in individual packages rather than in bulk size. You can voluntarily ask to be added to the band list at casinos and online poker sites to prevent future gambling sprees. Um, as another example... Um, actually, I don't have another example, so we'll move on. So commitment devices are useful because they enable you to take advantage of good intentions before you can fall victim to temptation. So whenever um, people are looking to cut calories, for example, ask the waiter to split the meal and box half of it to go before the meal is served. 
And as James Clear says, if I waited until the meal came out and told myself I would just eat half, it would never work. The key is to change the task such that it requires more work to get out of the good habit than to get started on it. If you're feeling motivated to get in shape, schedule a workout session and pay ahead of time. If you're excited about the business you want to start, email an entrepreneur you respect and set up a consulting call. When the time comes to act, the only way to bail is to cancel the meeting, which requires effort and may cost money. So commitment devices increase the odds that you'll do the right thing in the future by making bad habits difficult in the present. However, we can do even better. We can make good habits inevitable, inevitable and bad habits impossible. So now I'm going to talk about how to automate a habit and never think about it again. So here's a quote. John Henry Patterson was born in Dayton, Ohio in 1844. He spent his childhood doing chores on the family farm and working shifts at his father's sawmill after attending colleges at Dartmouth. Dartmouth. Dartmouth, I think that's how you say it. Patterson returned to Ohio and opened a small supply store for coal miners. It seemed like a good opportunity. The store faced little comp- competition and enjoyed a steady stream of customers, but still struggled to make money. That's, that was when Patterson discovered his employees were stealing from him. So in the mid-1800s, employee theft was a common problem. Receipts were kept in an open drawer and could easily be altered or discarded. There was no video cameras to review behavior and no software to track transactions. Unless you're willing to hover over your employees every minute of the day or to manage all transactions yourself, it was difficult, very difficult, to prevent theft. So as Patterson mulled over his um, predicament, he came across an advertisement for a new invention called Riddy's Incorruptible Cashier, designed by fellow Dayton resident James Riddy. It was the first cash register. Um, the machine automatically locked the cash and receipts inside each transaction. Patterson bought two or fifty two for fifty dollars each. So employee theft at a store vanished, literally vanished overnight. In the next six months, Patterson business went from losing money to making $5,000 in profit, which is the equivalent of more than $100,000 today. Patterson was so impressed with the machine that he changed businesses. He bought the rights to Riddy's invention and opened the National Cash Register Company. Ten years later, National Cash Register had over 1,000 employees and was on its way to becoming one of the most successful businesses of its time. So overall, the best way to break a bad habit is to make it impractical to do. Increase the friction until you don't even have the option to act. The brilliance of the cash register was that it automated ethical behavior by making stealing practically impossible. Rather than trying to change the employees, it made the preferred behavior automatic. So some actions, like installing a cash register, pay off again and again. These one-time choices require a little bit of effort up front, but create increasing value over time. James Clear says, quote, I'm fascinated by the idea that a single choice can deliver returns again and again. And I surveyed my readers on their favorite one-time actions that led to better long-term habits. Um, and it says here, I would say, um, I'll give an examples in a minute. And James Clear says, I'd wager that if the average person were to simply do half of the one-time actions on the list, what I'm about to say, even if they didn't give another thought to their habits, most would find themselves living a better life a year, a year from now. These one-time actions are a straightforward way to employ the third law of behavior change. They make it easier to sleep well, eat healthy, be productive, save money, and generally live better. So here are some one-time actions that lock in good habits. So listen to this. Nutrition. Buy a water filter to clean your drinking water. Use smaller plates to reduce caloric intake. Sleep. Buy a good mattress. Get blackout curtains. Remove your television from your bedroom. Productivity. Unsubscribe from emails. Turn off notifications and mute group chats. 
Set your phone to silent. Use email filters to clear up your inbox. Delete games and social media apps from your phone. Happiness. <laughs> Get a dog. Move to a friendly social neighborhood. General health. Get vaccinated, with, um, which I know a lot of people are anti that. But buy good shoes to avoid back pain. Buy a supportive chair or standing desk. Finance. Enroll in an automatic savings plan. Set up an automatic bill pay. Cut cable service. Ask service providers to lower your bills. So, of course, there are many ways to automate good habits and eliminate bad ones. Typically, they involve putting technology to work for you. Technology can transform actions that were once hard, annoying, and complicated into behaviors that are easy, painless, and simple. It is the most reliable and effective way to guarantee the right behavior. So this is practically useful for behaviors that happen to to infrequently to become habitual. Things you have to do monthly or yearly, like rebalancing your investment portfolio, are never repeated frequently enough to become a habit. So they benefit in particular form technology, remembering to do them for you. So here's some other examples. Medicine. Prescriptions can be automatically refilled. Personal finance. Employees can save for retirement with an automatic wage deduction. Cooking. Meal delivery service can do your grocery shopping. Productivity. Social media browsing can be cut off with a website blocker. So when you automate... As much of your life as possible, you can spend your effort on the task machines Task machines cannot do yet. Each habit that we hand over to the authority of technology frees up time and energy to pour into the next stage of growth. So as mathematician and philosopher Alfred North Whitehead wrote, civilization advances by extending the number of operations we can perform without thinking about them. So of course, the power of technology can work against us as well. Like binge watching becomes a habit because you have to put more effort to stop looking at the screen than to continue doing so. Instead of pressing a button to advance the next episode, Netflix or YouTube will autoplay it for you. All you have to do is just keep your eyes open. And I, I gotta admit, I fell into that when I was watching that really good Outer Banks show, mainly because of Sarah Cameron, because she's adorable. All right, moving on. Um, technology creates a level of convenience that enables you to act on your smallest whims and desires at the mere suggestion of hunger you can have food delivered to your door at the slightest hint of boredom you can get lost in the vast expense of social media when the effort required to act on your desires becomes effectively zero you can find yourself slipping into whatever impulse arises at the moment the downside of automation is that we can find ourselves jumping from easy task to easy task without making time for more difficult, but ultimately more rewarding work. Um, one of the, James Clear says here. So during the time during the year I was writing this book, I experimented with a new time management strategy. Every Monday, my assistant would reset the passwords on all my social media accounts, which logged me out on each device. So all week I worked without distraction. On Friday, she would send me the new passwords. And I had the entire weekend to enjoy what social media had to offer until Monday morning when she would do it again. One of the biggest surprises was how quickly I adapted. Within the first week of locking myself out of social media, I realized that I didn't need to check it nearly as often as I had been. And I certainly didn't need it every day. It's simply been so easy that it had become the default. Once my bad habit became impossible... I discovered that I did actually have the motivation to work on more meaningful tasks. After I removed the mental candy from my experiment, it became much easier to eat the healthy stuff. So when working in your favor, automation can make your good habits inevitable and your bad habits impossible. It is the ultimate way to lock in future behavior rather than relying on willpower in the moment. By, by utilizing commitment devices, strategic one-time decisions, and technology you can create an environment of inevitability a space where good habits are just an outcome you hope for but an outcome that is virtually guaranteed all right so that's everything i have to say on the third law guys remember third law 
Make it easy. Version of the third law. Make it difficult. So thank you for listening to the Late Night Facts of Backs podcast. Remember to reach out to me at Late Night Facts of Backs at gmail.com and on Twitter at Late Night Facts. Thank you for listening to some facts before you go to bed for that late afternoon nap. And stay tuned for part five of my habits podcast on the fourth law of behavior change, which is make it satisfying. All right, guys, back is out. Good night.